as people of color, and especially as Black and queer folks, that unfortunately harm and conflict and violence is a part of how we experience the world. I think that therefore by addressing conflict or leaning into conflict, inviting these conversations around what discomfort is, that we're actually working on um, or building out ways that we can resist or reduce those incidents. This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Werning. And this week, we're talking with Pascal Ife Williams, who goes by Ife, and Chris Roberts. They're two members of Black Youth Project 100's Healing and Safety Council, which you'll hear us refer to as the HSC. You are tuning in for a two-part series. So this week, we're talking about preventative practices of healing and accountability, aka how to build culture and agreements that prevent instances of harm. Next week, you'll hear from HSC leaders Janae Taylor and Kai Green about interventional healing and accountability practices, aka what to do when harm does occur. So the Healing and Safety Council is a body of members within BYP 100 that is dedicated to cultivating and supporting self-determined forms of healing, cultural production, and harm reduction. The HSC exercises the conceptual tenets of a healing justice framework and activates this work through a creative healing practice that is focused on prevention, intervention, and transformation. Some of the ways this looks is the creation and provision of an ongoing base of preventative care modules, community-based intervention for interpersonal violence or conflict, and transformative ritual through culture creation and visioning. The two leaders we're hearing from this week have been core members of the Healing and Safety Council of BYP 100 since 2015 when it began. Ife Williams is a Chicago native who finds herself in the intellectual praxis of liberation organizing, cultural production, and scholar activism. She is a Black, mixed-race, queer artivist, a revolutionary mother, a dreamer, student, educator, listener, and calm creator. Chris Roberts also joins us, and Chris is a Black scholar, a teacher, student, partner, and a space maker. And this week we have the total honor of grounding our time together first at the breakfast table of Ife and her son Kamari for their morning ritual. Let's listen. Okay, so we're sitting at our breakfast counter and it's 6.45 and in the morning, what do we do, Kamari? We say our affirmations. All right, so... Would you like to start or would you like me to start? You. Okay. I am loved and I love myself. I am respectful. I am loved and I love myself. I am respectful. I am smart. I am kind and I am smart. I love my hair and I love my skin. I love my hair, and I will always keep others safe. That is so beautiful. Let's see, one more. I always try my best. I always try my best. I will always be kind to other people. Awesome. And I know there was one thing sometimes that you also wanted to do, um, which was sing a little song. Yes. Yeah. I said I love being black. Oh, can you not look at me? I said I love being black. I can see you all. I said I love being black. I said, I love being black. I love the color of my skin. I love the texture of my hair. 
and I rock it everywhere. I said I love being black. The powerful song you just heard Kamari sing is called I Love Being Black. Those lyrics were written by Janae Taylor, and the music is produced by Jonathan Likes. That song is going to be featured on an upcoming album, The Black Joy Experience, Freedom Songs and Liberation Chants from the Movement, that is scheduled to be released this July. The lyrics are in the show notes and for singing by Black people everywhere. So, As we move into this conversation with the Healing and Safety Council of BYP 100, I want to share with you that this crew strikes me as having one of the most sophisticated approaches around healing that is being built into the infrastructure of their organization. In addition to their National Healing and Safety Council, there are HSC roles in each local chapter, And they're producing resources like the Stay Woke, Stay Whole manual to concretize the practices that keep chapters healthy and strong. We have a lot to learn from this crew. I spoke with Ife and Chris on the phone right after their most recent HSC retreat, and I'm excited for you to also hear their wisdom. Thank you for being here with us. Here we go. Hey, Ife. Hey, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, Kate. Glad to be here. I am so excited to be diving in with y'all for our first ever two-part series, which was a suggestion on behalf of your team, which I think is a beautiful suggestion. And also this idea of sort of organizing our conversations into thinking about kind of preventative and and preparation, healing and accountability methods, and then also uh, interventional methods, right? And um, looking forward to hearing from Janae and Kai next week about that topic. And also really heard clearly from y'all the ways in which all of this is very interconnected, that you can't really have a perfect part one that's just totally linear and it's like, here's what you do to prepare. And then a perfect part two that's totally separate from that. Like all of it is all of it. And I appreciate you bringing that that perspective as well. And just to start out, I'd love to start pretty simply with hearing from you about what is BYP 100 for folks who haven't heard of it before. Yes, of course. Um, So BYP 100 is a Black activist organization dedicated to Black liberation for all Black people. We do that through political education, leadership development, and nonviolent direct action. Um, And we also are very intentional about organizing through a Black queer feminist lens. So for us, that means centering those most impacted by the systems of oppression and violence that have historically hurt our bodies and our culture and our minds and the ways in which we show up. So that often means queer folks, trans folks, gender non-conforming folks, female identified Black women. And uh, Chris here, if I could take an add on to that, the mission of our organization is that we're dedicated to creating justice and freedom for all Black people. Uh, We do this through building a network focused on transformative leadership development, direct action, organizing, advocacy, and political ed, as uh, Ife had already alluded to. And the framework that really guides a lot of how we attempt to move and do move as an organization is the uh, Black Queer Feminist Lens, or BQFL, as we refer to it. We want the people uh, naming their truths, speaking their experiences who historically have not been able to speak that, right? And have not been valued, more importantly, when it's like, okay, we want this particular perspective. Who are the people that are last referred to? Who are the people who are last reached? And we're trying to shift that whole dynamic and say, no, that these are the voices that are most important for us as an organization and as a community. Mm, Thank you. I love the the BQFL. I haven't heard that abbreviated before. Um, but I absolutely have had every single person I have ever met who is a member of BYP 100 lead with We Organize from 
a, a black queer feminist lens, which is so cool. I think what a what a strong internal value that everybody is literally repping that at the top, right? And like, I'm also curious, you know, I had uh, read some of the backstory and, and remember around, you know, after the acquittal of George Zimmerman, after he had murdered Trayvon Martin, BYP 100 really coming onto the scene. And I don't know if either of you were there in that moment or if you've inherited some of the stories, but whether this perspective around the Black queer feminist lens and centering voices that often go unheard within the struggle for Black liberation from the jump, was that deeply central or was that a response to sort of some of the organizing that was happening? For us, it was about a vision of freedom that matched the particular political moment that we found ourselves in and a need to really, I guess, name that in an intentional way. And through our need um, and our desire to be very intentional, I would say I think that a lot of folks really took the lead and it was through who were the people at the lead. These were Black queer femme folks. These were Black queer women. These were Black queer people who were saying that this is our moment, this is our time. And I think that once you saw those voices coming to the forefront, <laughs> at that point, it was going to be, it was already decided. I think that the organization was very clear about its principles and values. Mm. Thank you. And I'd love to hear from each of you. Maybe we could start with you, Ife. Like, what drew you to this work, both the um, both the political work and, and the liberation struggle work, as well as the healing and safety work that you do within BYP 100? What was sort of your own life experience or story that led you to really feel drawn to participate in this way? For me, it's not a question as to if I can be a part of this liberation movement. I don't wake up certain days and tell myself, oh, today, like, I'm not going to fight for Black people. I'm not going to fight for liberation. Um, and that's not to say that I don't take rest and I don't take pause, but it's to say that I know that I hold responsibility for the children that I have born myself and the children that I see forward, right? So I think it was never a question to do the work, but I definitely came around to feeling like BYP 100 and the core values that we uphold were ones that were in line with my core values. My commitment or my interest in organizing through healing justice framework definitely also is grounded in the way that I see art and culture and creativity as a form of expression and cultural production, but also as a form of healing. So that's that's the way that I came into it. Um, I'm an artist. I'm a visual artist. I also sometimes use my words in ways that sound poetic, even though I don't consider myself a poet. But I think that that approach is what brought me to understand the importance of expressing our hurt and our harm but also moving into care and love for the struggle. Thank you. And I love hearing you uplift. Tell me if I'm mirroring this properly, but the, the, the tension between like the choices that you're making and how you show up and also the aspects of that that are not choice, that are lived experience, and how showing up for our own liberation is not really optional. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, it's a tension but for me, it's a non-negotiable. And I also would just emphasize that I truly understand and I truly believe that all the different ways in which people show up for themselves and their community is liberation work. So it's not just the ones who are in the, at the forefront who, who have been named as liberation organizers. I think that it's super important to, to understand the different ways that people create resiliency rituals and just work for our liberation that are smaller gestures. So in that way, I feel like the tension can be eased a little bit, right? Because I feel like as long as we have the good intent, then we're doing the work, even if it's not like a national campaign, for example. This is actually not something that I think that I've ever asked Chris or that I know Chris's story. So Chris, would you share your story with us? Uh, yeah, sure. I worked at a Black History Museum since I was 17, meaning I was a tour guide at that museum. I did juvenile justice work in the D.C. area for four years, meaning I did mentoring and education work. 
So that's how I got started. But I think my first couple years within this particular organization, I had to think through really critically what showing up meant for me. So A, as someone who um, has a lot of privilege in the spaces that we occupy, meaning, yes, our organization operates from a Black queer feminist lens, but me showing up as a cis Black man who is in a heterosexual partnership, I had to be very intentional in thinking through what does this look like for me and what does this mean for me? So one of the things that I've tried to think through or tried to think through in my own journey was what does leadership mean that isn't really the normative form of leadership that like cis men usually take? What does it mean to do the work of not being at the forefront all the time and centering those who are not always you? So that was how I took my juvenile justice experience, my education experience, and a lot of conflict resolution experience, and was able to move into this work of healing and safety. Thank you. And I'd love to just hear, like, what is the intention of the Healing and Safety Council, what you sort of consider your scope within that work, that particular role, as you were saying, Chris? And was it on the scene since the beginning of BYP 100? And sort of what is the importance of having a actually a formal organizational structure in place around healing and safety. I'd say about 2015, uh, there was a national incident involving our organization, which was presented an opportunity to craft um, this process and this work. What really came into motion was the development of a healing and safety manual that came out of uh, a collective of healers within the organization. Um, but Ife, do you want to maybe uh, fill in some of the gaps there? I think that one thing that actually came to mind that is um, not in response to your prompt, Chris, but just something that you actually said, was that you mentioned that there was a convening of healers who came together to develop the healing manual um, that is called uh, Stay Woke, Stay Whole, a Black Activist Healing Manual. And it's our first edition because we um, have already started scheming on a second edition. But I just wanted to to name uh, the term healers and for myself be clear that I don't consider myself a healer. I consider myself someone who is a conduit for helping to create the opportunity for people to do the work of healing, if that makes sense. So I don't, I don't necessarily name like specific modalities like Reiki, for example, I think that we've created a container for people to do the self-work of healing and also the collective work. So I just wanted to speak to that quickly. The other history piece that I would love to add is I think it's important that we name the folks who have really contributed to doing the work. So the, the whole idea really was rooted in Janae Taylor, who you'll hear from in the second series of this two series part, and also a former BYP 100 member, Madi Morales-Williams. So they kind of came together and they do have a whole background of transformative justice and restorative justice work that they had done. And they proposed to, the, to BYP 100 and to kind of the director in particular, like, hey, we've, we feel the need for this container. What do you all think? And folks were kind of down for it. So that's what really sparked it forward. There was also a national incident that BYP 100 member was involved in. And as an abolitionist organization, which I think is also really important that we name, we don't believe in utilizing the system that we know has been violent and detrimental to Black bodies to call people into accountability. So that meant that we weren't going to go through the courts, we weren't going to go through the police to address harm that had been done. We realized that there was a need for people to counsel together to help move people into that and through that. And that's that was kind of one of our openings to creating that internal core. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And and it, it sounds like maybe we might have more conversation next week with Janae and Kai about sort of the alternative response can look like within an abolitionist commitment when things do go down. 
But I know this week that you two are going to especially talk about something that I had never heard this phrase before, but I think it's genius, like preventative healing practices, basically. (laughs) Um, It's like, what do we do to try to not get ourselves into the situation where folks have caused extreme harm to one another? Like, what is the foundation that we need in the way that we be together that actually holds a container that takes care of us? And I'd love to just open the floor to both of you in terms of like, what are some of the practices that you find in the manual that you've created that you use within BYP 100 chapters that are part of that kind of preventional healing commitment that you have? Um, So I would say one of the things I guess that first comes to mind is actually respond to, I guess, the thinking behind that in the sense of preventative. So particularly for our organization, we're dealing with uh, Black folks. So part of what that means is that we are dealing with people who are daily subjected to white supremacy, white supremacist patriarchy, white supremacist heteropatriarchy, and largely this structure of a Eurocentric world. So One of the things that has to be done first is to address that and address the ways that that Eurocentric socialization has informed how we, as you said, be with each other, right? How we talk to each other, how we uh, greet each other, how we organize with each other, how we share space with each other, how we affirm each other. So for us, the need to really reset and reorient ourselves in a way that is postured towards the goals that we want is crucial because socialization is not just something that shows up on a minor scale. It's something that shows up in those of us who think that we are, quote, progressed, who think that we're woke, who think that we've somehow made it, right? We have to constantly reinterrogate our assumptions, our values, our purposes. So the need for, in the push for preventative within our organization is to um, not just shift minds, shift hearts, but shift culture. How do you shift culture where certain types of harm are not congruent with the way that a culture and a society and a community want to move forward and want to establish themselves. And again, living in a society that's built on the destruction of Black people and Black life, making that sort of a shift very intentionally is really important for us as an organization. And I think Ife could probably speak to some of the like ways that that then actually shows up within the organization. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, I I do. I, I do truly believe it. And I love being in this space where I'm like, not only are we shifting culture, which I think is an extremely important point for Chris to have made, but I also know that we're creating culture. And I think that's what speaks to transformative justice, or that's what speaks to creating alternative systems to the systems that we know do not care for us and do not serve us. Because you can't just abolish something and not have a vision for what that something will turn into. Mm. Right? I think that that's super key. So I think part of the work that we're doing is working through, and it's very clear, let's be very clear, this is an experiment. Right? (laughs) We have never done this before. And I I am so humbled every day that, first of all, people trust us enough to, to, to be in this work with us and to also understand, to be compassionate about the ways that their challenges come up or hiccups are, are part of this experiment. But yeah, so I think we're, we're shifting culture. We're also creating culture, right? So we're speaking to the visioning of alternative systems. The preventional work, it shows up in a lot of different ways. I mean, an example of one of the practices or kind of one of the invitations that we've opened to our members is to fill out uh, safety plans. So essentially a safety plan is a set of questions and just a set of like reflective namings that we invite people to do so that they can be prepared and others can support people if there's an incident of harm or of trauma or if there's an incident of feeling unsafe. So that is who are the people that you trust that you would like to be contacted if you cannot speak for yourself? Maybe listing out what what are some of your triggers and how do you best respond to calming those, right? So we have a list of questions that we've asked all of our members to complete so that we can know in advance how we can support and hold that. Another example of some of the practices that we, that we have created or that we put forward is enthusiastic consent. 
And the way that we talk about it in the manual, which I'm actually kind of inclined to, to read a, a small passage from the manual, which I'll do in a moment. But I think that beyond enthusiastic consent in a sexual or like an intimate way, I think it's also super important that we speak about enthusiastic consent around touch in general, right? Or just around the way that people are in your space. So it's not only intimate connection, but it's like, hey, do you want a hug? Like, can I hug you? And that person being like, yes. Yes, I would love a hug versus just going up to somebody and assuming that they're okay to be touched. But I'm going to read briefly just a paragraph from our manual, if that's cool. Enthusiastic consent rests on the idea that only an empathetic yes to sex means consent. It also means that consent is an ongoing process that requires folks continually checking in during sex and to be confident in their communication. So this might mean having conversations before the heat of the moment, or it might include sexy talk during the heat of the moment, which might look like, how does this feel? Can I try something new? And... We also try to just, in regards to enthusiastic consent around sex, it's awkward, but it's necessary. And I think we also approach a lot of our healing work in a very playful and creative manner so that it's very accessible to people. Mm, That sounds cool. What do you mean by that? How do you approach healing work in like a playful and creative way? Um, We do a lot of scenarios, Right. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, so we actually just had the healing and safety retreat. It's our second healing and safety retreat that we have once a year. And we were in Durham for three and a half days. And we worked through some of the challenges that chapters have come up across or have come up against through improv. Right. So that's kind of a playful way to be like, hey, this thing that keeps on happening in chapter meeting or this conflict that keeps happening between two of our members or between like members members overall in general, what are the different obstacles that keep coming up and what are the multitude of solutions that we can address these obstacles with? And then we just have folks play with it. And so it's funny and it's fun and it's creative. And that's essentially theater of the oppressed or improv. But that's just one example of ways that people can in that moment think about, hey, like this is this is an incident that I have many solutions that I can kind of call on. Chris, did you want to share something? Uh, just if anything, I think one of the examples uh, definitely that comes into just the ways that we kind of think through, I wanted to add a, a practice that's also working on, particularly in the cultural context that we've talked about, bringing certain folks into the space. And for us, that means um, the role of ancestors as being important. So also bringing in altar space within our work and bringing in ways of people just being able to be them for their full selves. I definitely think that we do a good job of bringing, as Ife alluded to earlier, the balance of that fun and intentionality and, you know, really affirming for folks that this can be work that you get excited about. Because I think one of the things that we found is that the work is heavy. And what I mean by that is that you oftentimes deal with experiences and perspectives and things where folks are very vulnerable. You know, and I think one of the things that we try to work through and establish is even like how Ife had addressed earlier, my use of the term healers. And I think one of the things that we want to work through is even in language it happens is how do we go about this work in a way where we collectively build competency so that no one, we're not always looking for this person to fix it or that person to fix it. How do we build that capacity within ourselves to be a community of people who can move towards healing in an effective way? So, and I think one of the ways that you do that is through fun. We have to think, you know, communities trust each other and communities are not just a collection of people. I say this all the time. Um, There are people you share space with and then there's community and those aren't always the same. One Mm -hmm. has to be built and one takes time. We try to use fun as a way to do that. Mm-hmm. It does sound really fun the way that you describe using improv or just drawing on a sense of there being multiple possible solutions to some of the common impasses that we face and like being able to try those things on sounds just so brilliant and like it brings so much lightness to, to things that can feel immovable at times. I'm curious too, out of your crew, is there somebody who was the most convincing actor when you do those exercises? <laughs> oh, that's a funny question. Hmm. I don't know. I think um, Janae has the background in theater of the impressed. So so she definitely like facilitates and she's very like gregarious and like very enthusiastic in her in her being. But I think that we all do pretty good. I don't know. I think I was pretty funny uh, and I did pretty well, I guess, when we did the improv the other day. So um, 
yeah. I would say, you know, Janae's the the top and we're all getting there, you know. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, And I I do want to ask too, so I know I had mentioned to you before that uh, on social media, we actually had some folks who listened to the podcast that were especially excited about hearing more about your enthusiastic consent practice. Um, And I love, you know, it was such an honor to get to hear a a paragraph from the manual that you work from and to start to sort of conceptualize of that concept as it relates to sex or as it relates to touch. And I'm wondering too, is there an aspect of enthusiastic consent that is also an organizing practice that is non-touched base? Like, I feel curious about moments when we decide things as groups, especially about things that are really close to our heart, like when we're doing our, our work for social change together, like how much we all have on the line and how much hope we have invested in those interactions. Is there an aspect of enthusiastic consent that applies to group decision making or even deciding, you know, who's going to take what risk at an action or anything like that, you know, leadership commitments? Has there been any play within BYP 100 around what does consent mean even beyond just the physical definition? Um, Yeah, I'd love to give a quick example of an actual story that just happened at the retreat. So one of the practices, which will be the practice that we share in the second part of this recording, um, is we always build community agreements together as a way to kind of understand how we're agreeing to be accountable and to also hold each other in the space. And so over the weekend, last weekend, one of our colleagues actually suggested that one of the community agreements be that in in decision making, that there be like a verbal enthusiastic consent to whatever we were voting on or making a decision around. So I think that's actually, that was a great question. And I think that it it does come into play sometimes in our decision-making as a collective where we're agreeing to enthusiastically say, yes, I think this is a good decision. We can move forward or, or say, no, I don't think I don't agree with this. And this is why, and to hold people in that. So yeah, I I do think that it comes into play. When thinking about enthusiastic consent, one of the key parts of that is ongoing, whether we're talking about it in a sexual context or a organizing context or a leadership context, the ongoing piece is very key. And I think that for us in the particular work that we do, that's one of the ways that we show up, I feel fairly well, is uh, really leaning on that ongoing part and saying that, okay, at every stage and every level of this, um, are folks on board? Are folks comfortable with these folks, these particular people moving the work forward? Do these people best represent us as an organization? So. I think that a constant reflexivity is part of enthusiastic consent as well. And it does something for people to know that they they deserve to be asked more than once. You know, I think sometimes when we model consent, whether in a sexual context or an organizational context, like, okay, you good, let's go. As opposed to saying, okay, I know you were good then. Are you still good? Am I still good? Right. Are we still good? You know, like, are we good about a different thing? So I think modeling that reflexivity is something that Um, does show up in other parts of the organization. Yeah, Chris, thank you for adding that. I think you gave a great example of the ways that reflexivity and ongoing consent is, is an example of how we embody it. And it's, it's a difficult practice to keep because we forget sometimes like we're, we're caught up in the heat of the moment or there's a deadline or we have to kind of move forward. But I think like, that's the way that we're cultivating this culture that we're really trying to craft. Yeah, that really calls me up in terms of thinking about like the ways that we make decisions together in our organizations and the idea of ongoing consent and Ife, how you talked about creating culture, not just interrupting and shifting culture that exists, but actually being the way that we want our culture to be. And I'm just thinking about also like the practical implications, right? Of like, really how hard it can be <laughs> to get a group of people that are really, really aligned to make a decision to move forward on like a particular action of any kind. And then also to raise the bar to say like, okay, we made that decision once, but that's going to stay, there's going to be the reflexivity to revisit it. Like, what do you do when the room is split? Well, one of the things is a pause. So we try to, hey, go, let's take a pause, y'all, and um, check in. And I think that Um, This being an experiment and this being a work in progress, sometimes there are ways where you meet a gap and you're you're just there for a while. And um, 
because some things you have you have, you evaluate it, you kind of go through it as a group. Some things you can move forward from. Other things um, you're going to hold a bit longer. I think what I can say is I don't want to give like, well, this is what we do and this is how we get it right. Because I think one of the things as an organization we're working through is really um, rethinking what does success mean? Like, what is success? Success sometimes is really wrestling with a thing because more often than not, we usually don't wrestle with, we kind of just move on. And I think in the wrestling, we might learn for us, there have been instances where we've wanted to move forward. We push pause on something we have those conversations where people don't agree in the room and we learn that the disagreement was actually about something much deeper, you know, and about something um, that needed to be addressed maybe from a long time ago. So part of what we'll do is we'll sit down, we'll discuss, we'll maybe set a deadline for the next conversation and those conversations flow really well. And then we're able to form a new consensus as a group. But other times the conversation might just be the conversation. And I think, like I said, we're still building it along the way, but I think Thinking about the focus as opposed to, okay, let's get to everyone agreeing. But no, let's really sit in why we aren't agreeing and what does that mean? Because as you said, and especially in our organization, we're politically aligned. We all share certain values, right? We all have certain principles. So if we have those things in common, yet we can't move forward. Well, then let's revisit what and why that is. So I'm not ducking the question, I promise. It's just, you know, sometimes you want to sit and um, that <laughs> sitting is, is hard. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, can I add really quickly? Um, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but it just, uh, it what Chris just shared, it brought up for me um, that I think in addition to sitting with that pause, right, or sitting with that discomfort of why are we not agreeing and let's take the time to work through it, I also have come to understand that this work means creating an opening for conflict or at least an invitation, right, for folks to, to share up on their fears, because that's kind of a proactive recipe for healing. Because we know that conflict and discomfort and uncertainty is going to show up. We just know that because we're people, right? And we know that because we're in an organizational space where we're, in addition to being in this work that is almost entirely volunteer for the most for almost the majority of us. But in addition to being in this work where interpersonal energies are going to conflict sometimes, we also understand that as people of color, and especially as Black and queer folks, that unfortunately harm and conflict and violence is a part of how we experience the world. I think that therefore by addressing conflict or leaning into conflict, inviting these conversations around what discomfort is, that we're actually working on um, or building out ways that we can resist or reduce those incidents. So I would say, yeah, that preventative healing is understanding, um, as one of my colleagues said actually over the weekend, right, that violence does not have to turn into trauma or that conflict does not have to turn into complete disarray. Mm-hmm. I feel like you just put that so clearly, like this intersection of the ways that we know that that kind of external world-facing struggle around violence and oppression is related to how we are with each other. But actually, like, the way that we're creating agreement together or facing conflict together is helps us build muscle for how we can face the humongous systems of violence out in the world, yeah? And in order to be a member of BYP100, you, you have to identify as a Black person, right? In having that affinity space, that Black-only space within the organization, do you feel like there are particular advantages or supports that are present in order to create an environment of healing and safety? Or how do, how do you think that that Black-only space is able to support you in a unique way? Um, I would say one of the things that I think has been consistent in BYP100 since the outset is on a very fundamental level, prospective members and current members can approach the organization in a certain way, knowing that, okay, these are um, on a very basic level, there are certain things about the people in the organization. And one of the things that happens in just this society that we live in, uh, whiteness has a way of doing anything before it says anything, right? And I think that one of the things we found through a lot of us who also were at that Beyond November moment had done years and years of organizing and activist work already. So a lot of the folks were very interested on what is the 
intracommunal and internal work that black folks can do. And one of the things that came out of that was, well, we want a space to have these very necessary conversations, particularly around gender, around class, around sexuality, around ability. And to have those conversations in the transparent and honest way we wanted, there was a particular type of space we wanted to cultivate. And I think one of the things that the organization brings is it really showcases and exemplifies the beauty among so many Black folks, right? The, the so many, our organization, Ife could attest to this. We have so many amazing, different, beautiful, awesome types of folks, and they're all Black. And that is just an amazing space to be in. You can draw on these people's experiences and their perspectives. So I think on a fundamental level, in a world where Black people are killed for being Black, to go to a space and you know that there are living Black people who you can commune with and be with and fellowship and grow with, it is in many ways just a statement of existence and resistance in spite of what this world is seeking to do. So, And I think it's a boundary. I think in a very fundamental way, we live in a society that pushes over the boundaries of Black people every day. You can't walk where you live. You can't eat where you live. You can't live where you live. You can only die where you are. So for us to say, no, this is our space and this is where we want to be is an affront to the logic of this world that we live in every day. This says Black people have no boundary that this world has to care about. None. And for us fundamentally as an organization saying, no, we have this and this will be us. And I think on a, even if people aren't a member of the organization, they see that and they're like, oh, okay. I don't know a lot about what that BYP thing is about, but I get that. And it, you know, then it becomes an entryway into much more in-depth conversation. I know, Ethan, if you want to add. I think that you shared very, um, very brilliantly, essentially everything that I was thinking about. I, I guess the only thing I can add was examples, right? I think that we we try to be as intentional as we can to create spaces where people feel 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 safe and feel heard and feel affirmed, but also feel accountable. And I think, for example, ways that we do that um, is we take over the bathrooms. like uh, so we always post gender liberated signs for the, the bathrooms. So folks can, can feel free to, to use the bathrooms as they please. It's a practice that, that we do without question. Chris mentioned calling in the ancestors. The ancestors are always with us, always with us, right? Um, and we kind of ground the spaces that we're in by creating collective altar, by having a grounding and a libation to kind of call in the ancestors. Um, we also kind of always check out. I think another way that we try to create space, and we can't always do this, but we often try to have physical spaces that are not only accessible to, to folks who are differently abled, but also that we know are going to be all Black, so that folks who may experience a bump or a trigger because of like an in, a bathroom incident, for example, that happened over the weekend where someone felt very, very harmed by an incident of a woman that came up that was questioning this person being in this space. So I think we also try to make the space closed in the sense that we can, to an essence, we can, we can control the way that people can be in the space. Yeah, I really appreciate the specific examples just to help us sort of land, well, what do these ideas that sound so amazing, like what do they look and feel like in the moment to moment? And um, also, Chris, your articulation around boundaries. Like I think one of the questions that I carry is is how, as a, as a white person, how can I be in peripheral support to whatever degree it's wanted or, or useful? Um, to organizations like BYP. And um, I want to invite non-Black folks who are listening to completely celebrate with me the the boundary of a Black-only organizing space. Um, and also, I want to celebrate the boundary that y'all have around having created this incredible work of the Stay Woke, Stay Whole Black Activist Healing Manual, and also not really being sure yet about 
if or how that is going to be shared outside of a Black-only community in order to protect it from appropriation, in order to really think through how that content would be received in a different community. I feel grateful that we got to hear a paragraph from it. And I also feel really grateful that I know you're sharing um, this practice with us that will sort of give us a window into your work. And it's a generous thing that you're sharing it with the broader public. And so I do want to ask kind of as we wrap together, if one of y'all could give us a little bit of a preview of what that uh, practice is going to be all about so that folks know uh, what they can be looking forward to. Absolutely. One of the things that uh, we try to do, as we've talked about a lot today, is to think about the ways in which we establish uh, sort of launching points, launching points for conversations, launching points for meetings, um, launching points for processes, whatever those things may be. And I'm sure that some of your listeners, Kate, are familiar with the concept of community agreements, which a lot of organizations practice. Uh, but for us, one of the ways that we try to expand that and bring that into a healing justice framework, to bring that into a BYP 100 framework, is to go through this particular practice that we have of thinking through the particular terms and definitions of what do we mean when we say safety, validation, affirmation, and justice. So we'll, um, we'll get into those. There's a lot more we can get into, but um, the practice we're going to share with you is a, our own take on uh, a deeper level of community agreement building. I am very excited for this. It's going to be super useful and transformative to the community agreements process um, that I know happens all over the place. And I just want to make one final invitation. If there's anything that you're really excited to name today that you didn't have the time or space to do yet, even knowing that next week we'll be hearing so much more from Janae and Kai deepening on this work, um, but anything that either of you want to add before we close? Yes, I, I know. I was just thinking about that. I was like, oh, man, I didn't mention this and I didn't mention that. And there are so <laughs> many things. <laughs> um, but I, I so appreciate the time and I really appreciate um, you, Kate, for for, for, for stating like your understanding of the boundaries that we hold and like the vulnerability that we share. Um, yeah, that we're exuding kind of in sharing this really sacred information. And, and it's not, it's not information, right? It's, it's, it's practice, um, this praxis, which is rex, re reflexivity and action. Um, I think that that's something that we really try to embody. Just, I, I recognize that we didn't really touch on too much community accountability. So hopefully that's something that Janae and Kai can spend some time talking through. Um, and I just wanted to say that we're like reimagining some of the ways that the Healing and Safety Council is going to show up and is going to kind of um, cultivate the work in the organization based on the conversations that were super generative that we just had over this past weekend. So I just wanted to, to, to share out that we really will be building out as like an invitation for all of the BYP 100 members to engage in some of these practices that we'll be doing, but like very deeply. So we didn't really touch on we, like I mentioned that enthusiastic consent, that's actually a curriculum that we're building out for people to engage in. Um, community accountability will be another practice or another curriculum. We have a curriculum around masculine of centeredness and how male identified members can not exude or cannot kind of like increase any types of toxic masculinity or patriarchy. Um, and I think that conflict and communication is another theme of curriculum that we're going to be building out for all of our members to engage with so that we really come to this work with a core value and understanding of how we are agreeing to show up. And the last thing that I wanted to just mention is I think that we really do approach this. And I said this earlier, right, in the ways that we try to be playful and creative and imaginative, but I think that we really do try to approach all of this work through a very creative healing praxis. So that means not only creating a curriculum that pe where people are going to be talked at, <laughs> definitely not. That means how is art involved in this? How is theater involved in this? How are people getting into all 
into their bodies, into their minds. Um, what are the somatics and what are the creative visionings of this work? Um, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Because Chris mentioned that. I think it's important for for all of us to understand that n not one person holds all of the knowledge, not one per person is like the key holder, and that we all have the capacity to engage and to contribute, and that we just need to be willing to <laughs> be transformed in the service of the work, which is mm -hmm. one of the mandates that was written by Mary Hooks. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, thank you for allowing us to to share what we're working with and holding and working through and creating. Mm. I would really just want to add, you know, thank you to your listeners. Thank you to you. Um, but also just thank you to our members who constantly trust us in ways that are very um, vulnerable sometimes. And I think trusting us to be in any space and represent them in any capacity um, and share things. So I just wanted to thank our members for um continuing to allow us to hold them and ourselves in the work in the way that we do. I shaded that. Thank you, Chris. You just heard a conversation between Ife Williams and Chris Roberts of BYP 100 Healing and Safety Council and Kate Werning. You can download the corresponding practice to learn a group exercise to deepen our understanding around community agreements. This is a wonderful fleshing out of a process that many of us use in organizing spaces with varying results in whether or not it really builds true agreement in community. And so I think this exercise is a great innovation and deepening of that practice. So check it out. As always, you can contribute to support this podcast project at patreon.com slash healing justice or make a one-time donation on our website at healingjustice.org. You can also join our email list there. We reach out once or twice a month to let you know what's going on with the podcast. Sign up for that email list at healingjustice.org. There's further information in the show notes and also links to our social media. So stay in touch. We'll be sharing some of the brilliant quotes from Ife and Chris's sharing this week on especially our Instagram and Facebook at Healing Justice. And this episode was generously edited by a new content editor with the podcast, Sonia Hansen. Thank you, Sonia. And was mixed and produced by Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Next week, we'll be joined by Janae Taylor and Kai Green in part two of our conversation with BYP 100. Hear you then.